I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Raised in one of the most notorious sex cults, one woman's memoir brings their atrocities out of the shadows and into the light. This is the Daniela Mestainik Young story. Good morning. Today we're covering something a little bit different, but very interesting episode. I can't wait for this one, especially because I was able to meet Daniela as well, and I'm so interested. Today's a little bit different because we're covering a topic that we don't usually dive into, which is the crimes committed by a cult. And while cults are not exactly in our criminal domain, we did cover, if you recall, Megan, the Anne Hamilton Byrne story. I sure do remember that one. That was actually our first exclusive Patreon episode, if I recall. But I don't believe that we have ever unpacked cults on our main feed. More specifically, going to be looking at the life of Daniela Messianic-Young. Now, she recently published her book, Uncultured. And this is where she parallels her experiences growing up inside the Children of God cult and her experiences in the military as a woman in combat. You know I love memoirs, Megan, so... Probably not surprising to you that I found this story through a memoir, but within one chapter, I knew that I would definitely be covering this case. I did not know that we would be able to speak to Daniela, but after I finished her memoir, I reached out to her and she very generously agreed to talk to us about her firsthand experiences. So needless to say, I'm very excited to be able to have her on the show with us today because when we talk about some of these stories, it's just always better to hear from an individual firsthand about their experiences. I agree. Megan, you're aware of the Children of God cult? Yes. 
I figured you knew about it from just from being in the criminology field, but let me give you a little bit of a history for those of our listeners who are not familiar with this particular cult. Now, the Children of God was an organization that has also been known by many other names over the years, like the Family of Love or just simply the Family. Now, let's not confuse this with Manson's family, which was Charles Manson, and he had his own smaller cult as well. But this is very different. This is an organization that was originally named Teens for Christ, and it was started in 1968 by a 50-year-old preacher from California named David Berg. Now, David was brought up spending a lot of time in the church. Both of his parents were pastors, and it wasn't surprising that he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and became a minister himself. But early on in his career, there were allegations of sexual misconduct. And as a result, you would see him moving around a lot. He worked a little bit in radio, a little bit in TV. He would always keep coming back to his faith. And he said that he was desperately seeking God when the Lord asked him if he would spread his message. So this is when David Burke took his wife and four children and began traveling to spread the message. Now, what was this message? Berg had claimed that he found his calling by saving, quote, lost souls who were searching for meaning. And he said he was, quite frankly, a prophet of God. To join David and what he considered this new group, people were told that they had to dedicate their life to Jesus and a certain specific type of Christianity. Now, this type of Christianity swayed from mainstream Christianity in that it denounced Christian churches. It also denounced pedophilia laws. Capitalism and Judaism. Okay. So, you know, clearly this group, which at the time was not considered a cult, but clearly this group had different beliefs than mainstream society. And really, they were dedicating their lives to this man, David Berg's beliefs. And Megan, I think it's clear that he had some extreme beliefs. And he furthermore believed that sex with underaged children was okay because raising sexually liberated children was a biblical truth. Now, Berg also believes heavily in corporal punishment, which is physical punishment with the intention to cause pain and discomfort. Berg believed that no child was too young, and he believed that even children as young as six months should be subject to this type of physical discipline. Berg was called dad by the adults in the cult and grandpa by the children in the cult. Now, he really capitalized on the end of the 60s. We're talking about the free love movement and the idea that sex could save the world from an apocalypse. And Berg continued to entice many people using these ideas of sexual liberation. And the cult would grow exponentially over the next decade. In fact, Megan, by the mid-70s, it was estimated that more than 30,000 people were part of the Children of God. And this is in more than 15 countries. Yeah, I knew that they were very big. You know what I always find an interesting feature of most cults is in some way, shape, or form, regardless of the ideology or the justification, there's always this allowance for taking privileges in various different forms. And I mean, it's not always just children either. It's the women and they can be adults or, you know, children included. Yeah. So we'll definitely unpack a lot more about cults. But for now, Megan, let's mm -hmm. hear about how Daniela's family ended up in the cult, the Children of God. So my grandfather was the one that joined the Children of God. It started in 68. I'm not sure what year my grandfather joined, but his description was he had a really bad acid trip and met Satan 
And then the next day, he's sitting in a park with his head in his hands, trying to decide what to do with his life, and along come the children of God. So he goes off with them. He is one of the few college-educated people, so he becomes the CPA, very, very senior in the finance with the profit very quickly. My mom is born in 1972 and becomes one of the first 10 kids in the Children of God. And then her mother, when she's young, decides to leave the group. And there's two stories. The story from my grandfather was that they were struggling to have a baby, so they prayed. And, you know, it's the Hannah story from the Bible. They said if God gave them a child, they would promise the firstborn back to God. So when Margarita, my grandmother, became a backslider and left the cult, she left Christy with God. The story that I would hear as a teenager and adult from the other side of my family was that when Margarita saw that the prophet was teachings were going into, you know, not just religious prostitution, which harmed the grown women, but pedophilia, which harmed obviously the children, she wanted to take her three daughters and leave. And, you know, that was the last she ever saw her eldest, Christy, who was about three or four. So my mom growing up, right, to me, she was the just the ultimate true believer. Um, but when she was 14, she gets impregnated by, okay, let me rewind. When she's 12, these are sort of moments I have in the book. So when she's 12, she hasn't seen her dad for three years because he is with the prophet and she's growing up with another family. So at 12, back then, they were considered adults because Berg's idea was as soon as you can menstruate, this is God's plan for you to have children. Um, so at 12, she is, you know, toasted into adulthood with a glass of wine and then asked to make a list of which uncles she would like to have sex with first. Um, and this is sort of the beginning of their really more formalized pedophilia. At 13, the prophet summons a group of 10 or 14 girls from age three to age 14. My mother's 13, and then he is, has a marriage ceremony to all of them, um, which is told to me my whole life as, you know, it was this beautiful, symbolic dedication of us to Jesus. Um, and later I would find out, of course, all of the girls had their love up time with the prophet. And the woman who ran the marriage ceremony was the mother of the, the three-year-old. So this was my mom's environment growing up. So at 14, you know, she is this dedicated true believer. She is a full-time secretary for the prophet. And she is impregnated by my grandfather's boss, kind of. Um, who was 39 at the time and is the only person in the cult that actually knows where all of the money comes from and goes to. Um, so he is, of course, you know, allowed a lot of leeway. Um, so because of my kind of conception and how big of a scandal it is, even in the children of God, they're like, okay, we can't have this. You know, we can't have living proof of very young girls getting pregnant. So we need to change and have these rules set that say sex with minors is against the rules. That makes me feel 
ill when I heard it, especially marriage ceremony of a three-year-old. It's it, it's inco- it's almost incomprehensible, even though I understand that it happened. Yeah. And Christie's pregnancy, as she talks about, this is the result of what was known as sexual sharing on the religious commune. So I just want to explain really briefly what sexual sharing is. Now, sexual sharing was that the girls were required to have sex with men on the commune, regardless of their status or wants. So, Megan, by status, I mean whether or not people were related. Their bodies were not their own. They were meant to be shared. In fact, they were taught that they were sacrificing their bodies for God. And this is all these children knew. So they had no reason to second guess it because the only adults they knew and trusted were telling them this. Daniela was born in 1987 in Manila, Philippines. As she explains, her mother, Christy, was just 15 years old at the time of Daniela's birth. Now, Daniela was four weeks early, probably because her mother was a child herself and probably couldn't carry a baby to term. Daniela was also born via emergency C-section because the cord had been wrapped around her neck. And in the book, she explains there was a moment where her mother didn't know what to do because they weren't supposed to have the medical intervention of having a Mm C-section. But she was told the baby and yourself both might die if you don't do this. Now, Daniela's father, as mentioned, was a 39-year-old financial advisor for the cult. Maybe it's not as obvious to everyone, but Daniela's mother, Christy, was certainly a victim of statutory rape. However, it was not perceived so because her mom was born and raised as a member, and therefore, these kind of actions were promoted. It was just considered the way things went. Mm -hmm. After Daniela was born, she was cared for at what was known as a commune nursery, and her mother was not allowed to see her very much. She was only allowed to see her to nurse her, and then she would have to go right back to work as the prophet's secretary. All of the children on the commune were treated the same, where they were kept away from their parents, and they all slept in a dorm area. And they were cared for by what they called aunties, while their parents all slept elsewhere on the commune. And of course, these aunties would punish them in various ways, as we'll hear throughout the episode. Let's hear from Daniela a little bit on her childhood and her experiences growing up in this type of environment. Probably when you were six weeks old, you were born, you were sent to the nursery, and your mother would come by to nurse you. Everything in the commune was on a schedule. So, you know, everyone had their job. So my mother gave birth to me when she was 15. She got a little extra time with me because she'd had a C-section. And then she was, you know, back to the prophet's being the prophet secretary, and I was off to the nursery. And so it really starts from there. And I describe that for the first 10 years of my life, till we sort of had a big regime change, I only saw my parents for an hour a day. So our whole, you know, in that way, our whole lives, we were isolated from our parents who would be like growing up, I think, in a group home in many ways, but just with lots of Jesus. Um, And then, of course, you know, they were big on all kinds of punishment. And, you know, of course, when you're growing up in that, it's I've done something wrong. Looking back, you can see how much of this is sort of just about control and you know, cults are about not being an individual, about being a group. So it, you know, I really describe our childhoods as just growing up in parallel, standing in lines and sort of a 
lack of spontaneous moments of joy that you would normally see children have because we were just so well trained to never step out of line. And not all of us, though, because some were like me and were a bit problematic or difficult. In my case, I really liked to ask why, imagine. And, you know, you're not supposed to do that. So, you know, solitary confinement, isolation was a big tool that they would use, as well as, you know, a lot of things I would later learn the U.S. Army calls stress positions, right? So it would be holding your hands out with a Bible for an hour or two, you know, not being able to move. Um, One of the big things that would happen in the cult, I think, that would make the punishments just multiply and multiply and multiply is the amount of people getting involved. So, for example, you do something out of line and your teacher... You know, the the teenage girl who's been assigned to be in charge of your group of children that day puts you in the corner, but then a a grown-up auntie or uncle comes by and is like, what did they do? No, that's not good enough. So then they go to isolation or they put you on silence restriction where you can't talk for days. And every time you talk, you get more. So I feel like that was really, you know how it happens, right? The idea is always reasonable, but then it compounds with the group dynamics and becomes completely unreasonable levels of discipline for children. It's quite hard to read, but in her memoir, Danielle describes a few of these severe beatings where she and some of these other children received punishment from what they would call the uncles. Megan, they would line up in front of everybody and the children would one at a time have to pull down their pants lay across the lap of the uncle, and they would get spanked, often until they bled. Did Daniela discuss what kind of behaviors might actually lead to this kind of spanking? That's a good question, Megan, because that's what made this even more terrifying, because usually these punishments were given for anything that the adult in charge felt was defiant or bad, but it wasn't clear what the rules were, because it would change based on the day and based on who was supervising them that day. So there was no way to even keep yourself, quote, in line with the social norms because there were none. It was There were no clear guidelines for these children. One of the punishments that stuck out the greatest in Daniela's mind was how the commune handled her mother teaching her to read. It's this very specific memory of my mom sneaking me out of the communal nap time so that she can teach me to read. And, you know, we were all taught to read very young, uh, Initial schooling and the cult was a big deal to keep interest away, but it was the personal time. It was like the one-on-one time with your parent that was really not allowed. And my mom is this other cult kid growing up in the cult also, you know, so she's kind of pushing her way and, and sneaking me out and spending time with me. And she teaches me about like books, you know, and she has these books from the outside that we were allowed to have for learning to read. And I just think they're amazing. And I've gone on to, you know, think books are amazing my whole life. But from that moment on, books are banned for me for the next 12 years. Essentially, Megan, the aunties were banning Daniela from reading for 12 years because her mother was spending too much one-on-one time with her. So this was really a culture of control and keeping these children away from their mothers. What an awful punishment. It's almost worse than some of the corporal punishment, not having that access to knowledge or being able to read. That would be torture for me. 
Many other children have spoken out about the abuse that they suffered from being raised in the children of God. In fact, there's a few well-known celebrities who have spoken out about their time in the children of God. So Rose McGowan, her father actually ran a chapter of the cult in Italy where she was brought up. And she says that she very often witnessed sex crimes. And in fact, she ran away at the age of 15 and became excommunicated from her parents and then started her life in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Then you have the Phoenix family, right? right? River and Joaquin Phoenix, along with their siblings, were brought up in the cult as well. Now, their whole family would end up leaving in the mid-70s once it became obvious to them that there were some questionable practices going on in the cult, such as incest and a practice known as flirty fishing. What is flirty fishing? I've never heard this term before. So scholars who've studied this cult talk about this one tactic that the group used called flirty fishing. Now, this is when the most attractive females were used to lure new male recruits. Basically, this was a form of religious prostitution in which female members would use sex to lure men to the cult. And this would be either to recruit them or sex in exchange for donations. A lot of these women were forced to use this as a way to raise money for the cults. And this would go on from 1974 to 1987. And one of the reasons that they would stop this tactic is because of the AIDS epidemic. But females were told that they were, quote, God's whores or, quote, hookers for Jesus. Oh. Now, you have this community with strict rules. You have these bizarre living situations. But people ask, how do they end up thriving? And it's clear that this is one of the ways in which they were financially able to survive. Daniela talks a little further about religious prostitution and how it's, in fact, human trafficking. You know, one of these realizations that even I am just having now, because the Children of God is famous for using religious prostitution in the 70s. And of course, the story was essentially as soon as AIDS became a thing, that was over, that stopped. I am only realizing now that never stopped. We just were no longer going all the way, right? But they were 100% always using whatever sex appeal we had at whatever age we had to use that to make money or to bring in followers in much the same way they were doing in the 70s. So I'm just having that realization now, and I have been contextualizing this since actively since I was 22 or 23 years old. So I think when you say human trafficking, sex trafficking, most of my fellow cult babies believe, no, we, we wanted to be there and we left when we didn't want to be there anymore. And, and that's kind of where they stop and don't realize like everything they were using you. We were the labor. Cults are always about labor. And from the moment we could do labor, we were the labor, right? So in my case, from before the age of one, I was an actress on these childhood entertainment videos that we would then sell, sold millions and millions and millions of copies around the world. So they trafficked us, they filmed it. They weren't even, you know, trying to be careful about any of this. But 
I just, I think, you know, we see this with soldiers with PTSD, the way that you survive living through extreme situations is by telling yourself it's not so bad. So like, like it's a very interesting and, and very horrifying debate right now. But some cult scholars have said, you know, children of God survivors have the same suicide rates as Holocaust survivors. And so immediately people go, oh, my God, it wasn't the Holocaust, you know? No, of course not. But it was maybe past the point where human beings break. Yeah, I thought that was such an interesting point that she made about it's almost like a self-preservation tactic. But I hear what happens to them, and I'm not at all surprised at the levels of PTSD that these children would have to deal with as adults or through the course of their life. And it also, it's interesting, this was the first time that I heard it referred to as human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what it is. But it's not so obvious that's what it is, because when you think about human trafficking, you don't think about these children being born into these cults. Right. So by the 80s, there were hundreds of Children of God communes all over the world. And one of the greatest hallmarks of Danielle's early life was just how often she moved around. We would sneak across borders all of the time. We would be snuck across borders in and out because we were essentially living around the world on tourist visas and then sneaking out, coming back in through another entry And that was my life in Brazil. We actually got deported from Japan when I was about three years old, which I never even realized until after I got out of the army that that happened. They were essentially living around the world and they were living on tourist visas. And then they would sneak out and come in through another entry. And this was just the way that they would kind of live under the grid, but continue to move around. And in 1993, Daniela moved to a commune in Brazil, and she would spend her days being schooled on the Bible. They would homeschool the children in the cult, but they would teach them only about the Bible and through their interpretation of the Bible. So it was around this time that Daniela began questioning a lot about her life. There was a more specific moment when I was either five or six, you know, isolated in a basement with a well-known pedophile and spending about 10 hours there, I would estimate. And I had my, I think, just sort of break with God. And I said, I don't care. Like, even if he's real, I don't care. I'll go to hell, but I'm not going to do this, right? Because we were taught, you grow up in the family, you stay in the family, you become a missionary for God. That is all you do. And of course, as girls and women, we were taught that our bodies were for the men and God and whatever he wanted. So, yeah, you know, six years old, I would say I was done. But I think for me, it was always the lack of logic, which is the thing that like adults in cults will push themselves through the lack of logic. But children, I think, or at least children like me, just get stuck. Like, why are you telling me books and ideas are good? But then we're not allowed to have books and ideas from the outside. So I think it's pretty amazing that Daniela was wise beyond her years, and she started questioning things at such a young age. And there was a point that things started to get a little bit better because a year after Daniela moved to Brazil, the prophet Berg had died and a new leader would take over the children of God. Now, this leader did not condone the extreme punishments to children, and this leader also said no more isolation. There would be a large reduction in physical punishment. And most importantly, Megan, 
This new leader said anyone who had sex with a minor would be excommunicated. Oh. Yeah, so this all sounded pretty good. So I think that Daniela may have felt like there was hope. But unfortunately, according to Daniela, this did not stop all of the bad behavior. So the first outburst that the prophet had upon finding out that, you know, one of his lieutenants has actually impregnated a young teenager is to say, no more having sex with girls once they start menstruating until they're 16. That then becomes formalized somewhat into a policy of no sex until they're 16. And one of the things that was significant in my life is that they never told the children that. So unsurprisingly, I think, the pedophiles continued isolating children and doing what pedophiles do. But the first time I actually had the concept and the language for that being wrong was when I was eight years old and the prophet died and his spouse took over and gave us a charter of rights and responsibilities. So, you know, even when I grew up and started to dissect this and people will say, well, that's ridiculous. You know, how can this younger generation have any trauma? You know, all of the pedophilia stopped and like, of course it didn't stop. And he, they didn't even repudiate his beliefs into well into the 2000s. And they've never apologized for them. And, you know, so acting surprised that the entire organization carried the horror, horrible beliefs of the founder, I think, is a little rich. I'm not surprised that the illegal sexual behavior continued because I think by that point it was probably just too institutionalized at that late stage. I totally agree, Megan. And things for Daniela would not get much easier because her family moved yet again when she was 10 years old. And when I say her family, Megan, I'm referring to her mom and her younger siblings and her dad. Now, I'm not sure if this is a biological father or just a father or someone who just became her father, who her mother was with. It's not very clear, but this family unit would move yet again to another part of Brazil. And Daniela would say that things did get a little bit better, particularly because there were no uncles who abused her at this time. And she was also with some kids her age. So she started being able to socialize and play and not experience this daily abuse that she was experiencing previously. Mm -hmm. When she was around 12, the family moved yet again. But this time they moved to the States and they would move to California and live in a small three-bedroom apartment in San Diego. Now, they lived with another family who was also part of the cult. It would end up being 18 people all together in a tiny space. But again, this was a good time for Daniela because there was a pool nearby. There were lots of kids for her to hang out with. And for the first time in her life, Daniela was allowed to roam around freely. Megan, she even met a boy and had her first fling. So she was able to somewhat experience life as a normal preteen. Mm -hmm. About two years later, unfortunately, because again, Daniela was pretty settled here, the family moved yet again. They went to a commune in Mexico, and she was very upset by this. They would also move to three different communes while in Mexico. Do you think they're moving so much because they're either trying to stay off the grid or because they're afraid law enforcement might be chasing them? Or, you know, that's what I think of when I think of these reasons. They're moving an awful lot. I think you have a good hypothesis. I okay. think it would make sense that 
they want to stay off the grid. I mean, they have children that are not enrolled in school. They have these practices that right. go against societal norms. I'm definitely going to, I am going to put that on my list of questions to ask her because I'm very curious. I think this is one of those stories that no matter how many times we would talk to Daniela, we'd still have more questions. I know I would. While it's clear that Daniela had been contemplating a way out of her situation, it wasn't until this time in Mexico that she really started seriously considering an escape route. When I was 14, and, you know, this is in the book is described as when I sort of really had this crack in the brainwashing. I knew I didn't want them and their God. But when I saw 9-11 on live television and my people were praising God and I heard the term religious extremists, I had this moment where I was like, oh, we might actually be bad people. We might actually be religious extremists, too. And, you know, at this point, we're teenagers and we're all sort of rebellious and, and talking about wanting to get out, you know, talking about the real world um, and what we would do. But you know, for me, like, I loved my mom. I still do. She's one of my best friends to this day. And I couldn't break her heart. And, you know, I was actively trying to make a plan to leave from the age of 11. And then really, really from the age of 14. But it took me getting to this sort of desperate point. And at 16, you're an adult. And I did not want to be an adult at 16. And it wasn't just about me wanting to get out of there. It was as much about me not wanting to break my mom's heart and like forsake everything that they hold dear. Daniela explains at this time when she was talking about like breaking her mom's heart, she was going against a lot of the rules. She was hanging out with people who are outside of the cult, having relationships with boys and just doing things that her family didn't approve of. So I think besides the fact that she really was ready to get out, she just felt like she was a disgrace to them also at this point. So in late 2002, she left for good, just like she says. She was 16 and ready to go. Now, she was considered excommunicated and she was sent back to America. The reason she was excommunicated, although she kind of left on her own accord, it's because she kept pushing the boundaries. And one day she was hanging out with, I believe she had a relationship with a boy who was not part of the cult and she had fell asleep. And when her family woke up, she was not in her room. And this is something that was very much against the rules. And everyone had no choice but to tell her she needed to leave. But again, she wanted to. So this was good. Daniela was lucky in that her father had arranged for her to live with a half-sister that she had in Houston, Texas. Now, this half-sister, I believe it's on her father's side, but I'm not sure if it's her biological father or who she considered to be her father. And it's also not clear if her half-sister was also at one time part of the cult. I get the impression that she was, but I can't be certain. But either way, Daniela had a place to stay, and it was outside of the cult, and this was great for her. And she was very happy there. She enrolled in school with the help of her half-sister's boyfriend. Because remember, she was off the grid for 16 years. She had to prove that she was a citizen and that she could get education. She also began working at a fast food restaurant. She was desperately trying to save money because she wanted to make a life for herself. Transitioning out of the commune was very difficult for her, mm -hmm. not only because she was struggling financially, but she just felt like an outsider. She did get along very well with her teachers. They really liked her because Daniela, as you heard yourself, Daniela is very smart and the teachers took to her, but it was very difficult to fit in socially. Oh, I'm sure. I 
was not fitting into the world. I was highly successful at school, but I wasn't, I couldn't like break into the social code of America, mostly because I was trying to hide my background and pass. And so I was socially very miserable. Unsurprisingly, I fall into a series of inappropriately not good relationships. And Megan, what Daniela describes sounds a bit like what sociology would describe as passing. Now, passing is a sociological concept that describes the ability of a person to be regarded as a member of a group. So essentially, it's when an individual communicates false identity attributions to gain social group membership. So it sounds like she was trying to pass, but having a lot of difficulty doing that. She wants to belong to this new social group in the mm-hmm. new world that she's a part of, which is understandable. Yep. And regardless of her social misery, she did receive a scholarship to attend the University of Texas. And she was able to carve out a space for herself there. And she says this was the first time that she did feel like she belonged. She found a small group of friends. She also would meet a young man named Jeff with whom she started dating very seriously her sophomore year. Now, the two would end up getting married during the summer between her junior and senior year. Daniela says she did have doubts about this relationship, but she was convinced by Jeff himself that this was the right move for her. Daniela spent her senior year studying abroad in Germany while her husband went to the U.S. Army basic training camp. They were having a long-distance relationship at this time. Now, even before meeting Jeff, Daniela had seriously considered joining the military herself. She figured this was a good way to gain some financial stability. And she also thought that having a structured environment would be a good thing for her. Daniela also says that she wanted to give back to America. She says after all that she had been through, she really felt lucky to be an American. And when Jeff found out that she was considering this prospect, he very much supported her and, in fact, pressured her to commit herself to going down this new path. Today, now, at 35 years old, when I explained why I joined the Army, it is for every single reason that people join cults. Um, 100%, right? Seeking community, seeking even... I was exhausted from six years of going from no school to 10th grade through college. And I remember looking forward to three months of basic training where I don't have to think. There, The military says, the Army says, all you have to do to be successful is be in the right place, the right time, the right uniform. And I was like, that sounds glorious. So it's just another way to disassociate. It's another way to not be in your body. And, you know, I found out for for many reasons that I would think to would apply to people from all kinds of trauma. Like you make a good soldier, you know, nothing the army could make me do was painful. You know, nothing they could make me do was something I could not survive. And I knew that because I'd already survived it all as a child. So You know, now, of course, I can see how I was absolutely repeating these patterns. But at the time, I just felt, oh, hey, I have an advantage in something. Finally, you know, I'm better at soldiering than most of these people because I was born a soldier. I can totally understand why she saw that. What what an epiphany, too. It was so interesting for me to hear just hear that, that she joined the army or she joined the service for the same reason people join cults. Yeah. And in our discussion, Megan, we're going to dissect kind of the differences between cults and the military. 
So I think it'll become even more clear to listeners why that was such an attractive option for Daniela, given okay. her background. All right, Megan. So that's going to be it for part one, but we still have a lot of the story to cover. Make sure that you all join us next week for part two with Daniela. We will hear from Daniela about her experience as one of the first women on the front lines in combat. Megan, we're talking boots on the ground. We'll also talk to Daniela about whether or not she had the opportunity to confront her abusers and whether or not she ever got an apology. Amy, I cannot wait for part two of this episode. I find this story so interesting. I love that Daniela came and spoke to you. This story is really compelling. And the fact that Daniela just tells it so openly and honestly, I just think it's amazing. And I can't wait to hear the conclusion. And I just can't wait for us to do kind of a deeper dive um, on, on the military, cults, uh, the psychology of it all. It's a great topic. I hope everyone will join us next time for it. Yes, a lot more to come. So we look forward to you joining us next week on part two of Daniela's story. Catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include an interview with Daniela Masayanek Young, Daniela's book, Uncultured, A Memoir of Cults, War, and Belonging, davidberg.org, and childrenofgod.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.